And good evening, everybody, and welcome in to another episode of the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast. Tonight, I am your host, Chris Yanes, accompanied by my co-host and founder of In All Kinds of Weather, Neil Shulman. And we are really excited to be here with you tonight to discuss spring game commitments and dominance on the bay on both Diamond Sports this weekend. But before we get into that, want to give a quick word about our sponsors and partners. First, we're proudly partnered with the Gator Good Foundation, the nonprofit organization that works to send an underprivileged Gator fan to the swamp. For those of you that are new listeners, the Gator Good Foundation collects donations from fans and uses it to bring someone to his or her first ever Gator football game. You believe you or someone you know is worthy of that honor for next season, please email us at GatorGoodFoundation at gmail.com. Secondly, we're proudly sponsored by Stingray Branding. These folks will put a sting into your marketing and will deliver you results that will wow your clients. Whether it's web design, logo design, branding, graphic design, social media management, search engine optimization, marketing strategy, or mobile app design, Stingray has you covered. If you or someone you know needs professional help in any of the above, here are three great reasons why you should choose Stingray Branding. One, it's veteran-owned. It's a veteran-owned business. Can't think of a better way to properly thank those who serve our country than giving them your business. Two, it's run by a UF alum and a big-time Gator fan. And three, you've got personal stamp of approval from in all kinds of weather as they did our new logo and our new website. They also did the Gator Good Foundation website and they do marketing for the Charleston Gator Club. They've still got more Gator related projects on the horizon. So if you're listening to this pod or your brand and your brand or company needs any help in the aforementioned areas, rest assured that Stingray Branding will more than take care of you. To view their full list of services and rates, go to stingraybranding.com. And with all that taken care of, Neil, we can finally get into the big part of the episode here where we finally get to recap and talk about what we saw from the spring game this past Thursday night. You were there in person. I was watching home here in Tampa, but there's certainly a lot to react to. For those of you that haven't had a chance yet, we actually have a reaction article up in our website. So I definitely invite you to go check that out and read it. We have five takeaways from that game, which we'll discuss a little bit here more in length. But Neil, tell me what you thought first of the spring game and what was the atmosphere like there in the swamp? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the the spring game atmosphere was definitely um, a little bit more than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was a little bit more rambunctious than I was anticipating. Obviously, it's a spring game. It's not going to be 90,000 plus in the stadium. Um, but I thought that moving it to a Thursday night, which, you know, great move for recruiting purposes, I thought was going to be a bit of a downer in terms of the attendance. And I do I do think that the the number that UF announced of 42,000 was kind of kind of BS, but there were a good, I would estimate 28, 30 ish, 32,000 or so. And they were, they were into it. Um, of course, the, the, the three hours before the spring in, there was a Florida victorious launch event. That was, uh, probably the highlight of the day, honestly. I mean, as you touched on in the article, so if y'all haven't already done so, go read that to see the rest of what Chris thought of the spring game, but no, it was it was a fun time, man. I mean, I met Chris Rainey, um, couple of other former Gator athletes, um, other sports, Natalie Lugo, Kendall Lindemann, uh, softball players. Saw them again, actually, at the softball game on Saturday, my first ever Gator softball game. That was fun. Um, talk more about that later. But yeah, spring game was, was I, I thought, as good of an atmosphere as you're going to get 
for Thursday night with, you know, people living in Jacksonville and Orlando and Tampa and Atlanta who are maybe planning to come down for a Saturday and planning a weekend, not able to do so. I thought with that a little bit of a hitch in their plans with that in place, I thought it was a pretty good environment. Yeah, I would agree just from watching on TV, the stadium, you know, we're obviously not going to sell out, but it did look full sort of at the beginning and, and, throughout halfway point of the game and people will come and go but just seeing the the the, the pictures on social media and, and some of the fan engagement especially at the florida victorious uh, tailgate party that you were at it it seemed like the atmosphere was there there was an excitement to have some football back and to watch it but looking at the game you know and and this is something that i i, I put in, at in my article on the website is I think there are some questions that are still remaining out there and maybe even some concerns that we speculated about going into this game. And then there were some things where I, you know, I think there's some, we can rest our head on that. There's some, the team is doing some good things and there's some things we got to work on. So looking at the things we need to work on, you know, from your perspective, you think you've got to start maybe at the quarterback position. I mean, that's, I think that's kind of the low hanging fruit here when you say. Yeah, but it's, it's the low-hanging fruit, but it's also the position of the field that dictates how the entire team does. If you have a good quarterback, but a maybe a, a bad defense behind it, like we saw in 2020, you can still be in a de facto national quarterfinal game like Florida was against Alabama. Um, and conversely, if you have a really good defense and maybe not a great quarterback, well, the defense will keep you in games. But you're going to be in trouble if you're ever put in a situation where you're down and you need a couple of first downs maybe um, just to keep the game going so that the, def- the other team doesn't just run your defense off the field. Um, and if you got a lead, you'll need a quarterback to make a few throws to you know ice the game. And I'm not sure Florida has that because the QB position is a massive, massive concern. And I really confirmed what I'd heard all spring long, that both Jack Miller and Graham Merge were very, very inconsistent. They, they would have some good days. They would have some days that would draw some praise um, and, and give me some nice reports about them. And then they had some bad days where they were just not in sync with the receivers. The mechanics were bad. I mean, that that like, that was the thing that just had me really frightened, that everything vacillates with them. It's not just are they completing passes. It's everything. So, I mean, some days they're just dropping the snap. Thankfully, that didn't really happen. I mean, the bad snaps, I guess you could say more on, on uh, Roderick Kearney, the center than on the QBs, but you know, th- they'd have days where they couldn't do anything right. And they'd have days where they just couldn't miss and they were just absolutely perfect. And that, you know, okay, cool. You have some great days. That's good. But that bit of inconsistency is frightening. You know, some days you have Mertz very much in, in sync with his receivers and some days he can't hit the broad side of a barn. And I, I don't think we saw that, maybe. I don't think we saw a terrible performance from Grammarch, but it wasn't a good one. It certainly wasn't a great one, and it wasn't one that gives us a lot of confidence in his ability to lead this football team. And if that's the biggest stage he's faced at Florida so far, and maybe you think, well, our nerves are part of that, that's really frightening to think about because that's the spring game, and the stage gets so much bigger I mean, I don't know what else to say, Chris, other than that, I'm, I'm very worried. And I think, you know, keep it respectful, keep it real. I've heard great things about Graham Merch as a person. I'm rooting for him. But, I'm, you know, as, as Napier himself hinted in the press conference, Florida might just grab another portal QB at the 11th hour. So keep it respectful, but keep it real. Nothing but good things to say about Merch, the human being. But I'm just not sold on him being the guy, nor am I sold on Miller. Yeah, I think at the very least, 
you know, at, at the very least right now, the quarterback position is unsettled. We don't really know who's going to be the starter. I think coming out, Graham Mertz is the favorite to win the job. He certainly had the better spring performance if we want to get into the statistics here. He was 18 of 29 for 244 yards and a touchdown. Did not turn the ball over, which is good. Neither of the quarterbacks actually turned the ball over, which is really nice to see. Uh, Jack Miller was 10 of 20, 144 yards and a touchdown. So better than his spring debut last year, where I think people kind of realized there is a massive gap between him and Anthony Richardson. This is the gap isn't as big, uh, but neither of these quarterbacks really are going to wow you. And I, I think we're in a situation right now with, without taking another quarterback absent of a miraculous turnaround from Max Brown, who hardly was non-existent. He was pretty much didn't do anything in this game. Florida is going to, is going to have a game manager at best this coming fall, which means we're going to have to rely heavily on the run game. And we're going to have to hope our offensive line can protect the quarterback so they can go back there and deliver passes. You know, Neil, I do think there are some good takeaways when you look at the offense. You know, I think that there are some young freshmen that are starting to really flash. We all heard about Andy Gene all spring that showed up in a little bit in this game where he had that one catch and he was able to make a bunch of guys miss that shows his big play ability Possibly, I think he's a guy that's going to play a ton of snaps, probably work his way in the starting rotation with a receiver room. You had Aiden Mizell, who also flashed some of his speed throughout the spring and some of those spring practices and games, and then ultimately in the orange and blue game. I think he's somebody that potentially could work himself into the rotation. Xavier Henderson had a very good spring, didn't do a lot in this game particularly, but showed that he's got that playmaking ability. And then, of course, Ricky Pearsall, who had two catches in this game for over 50 yards. So I think there's going to be some playmakers for these guys, and this might be a more settled receiver room. It's definitely a more settled running back room. As I talked about in the article, I think the offensive line leaves a little bit more questions than that maybe we first thought. And we should have probably predicted that with the injuries to Cam Waits after the bowl game. And, and then uh, Micah Mascua, who unfortunately got hurt and, and has not been able to participate in the spring. And we've had to rely on some freshmen. You mentioned Roderick Kearney playing center. Uh, Najee Harris, who has now worked his way into the rotation. I think there's options out there, but there isn't a solid, okay, these are our five to eight guys that we can rely on to be a starting offensive line to protect the quarterback, these game managers that we need to help sit back there and make plays, and then also open up the run game. Because in my estimation, I think we have at least one of the best running back rooms, if not the best running back room in, in the SEC with Montreal Johnson and Trevor Etienne. And then you look at the addition of Kemp Carroll through the portal. And then even, you know, Trayon Webb. Trayon Webb made some plays in this game as well. I really feel good about a running game, and I think that's going to be the identity of this team. It was the identity of Billy Napier at Louisiana. But certainly there's something to be desired with this quarterback room. And I read the comment two ways. The Austin Simmons committed a couple of weeks ago now and there's a lot of rumors out there that he's going to reclassify all the way up to 2023 because of the fact that he can graduate early from high school. He has the credits to do so. Or we go out and take a quarterback. And there's going to be some potential quarterbacks. There's some fan fodder out there about the Texas guy. I don't think it's going to happen. You know, we'll see. I, I think that the, the coaching staff is probably looking out there. This is pure speculation. But I also think there's the possibility that they might just be content with what they've got. They're building for ultimately 2024, and that might not be something that Gator fans want to hear, but this is a stopgap year at quarterback, and then they're going to have Simmons, they're going to have Lagway, and they've even offered some more 2025 kids at the high school level, which tells me that they probably are predicting that Simmons reclassifies. So 
We'll see what happens at the quarterback position. I think there's a lot uh, still, though, to be settled, and, and we'll see if they can win his games. If Florida can have a, an efficient and effective run game and they can make plays uh, in the passing game every now and then, I think this is a team with a solid defense like we showed on Thursday night can win eight to nine games in the SEC. Probably their ceiling, but they can do it. You know, it's going to rely on those factors, though. And and that's kind of a scary point because last year, you know, we Anthony Richardson, while he was inconsistent at times, too, in the passing game, he had that big playability where he could just turn like the LSU game last year. We were down by 21 points and all of a sudden he bust off an 80 yard run. And then before you know it, it's a one score game with a chance to tie it at the end, if not for the roughing the passer penalty on Gervon Dexter. So we don't have that this year, though. If Florida goes down 21 points in a game, we're probably not coming back. And there's no hope for that big playability from either of those quarterbacks. So I think that's kind of where Florida fans are at right now, where their concern is because they don't feel like the talent level around the quarterback is high enough to elevate them like we had where we have a potential top five pick and two more weeks and Anthony Richardson no longer on the team. We had that last year and and we and we lacked that. So, Neil, what are any other takeaways you had from the offense? Yeah, well, it's interesting. You you brought up, um, I think, very happily that Florida is building for 2024 because we're sort of putting all our chips in that basket now. I mean, that is the final year of what you call the three-year test. And I will say this um, for 2023, this, this is more point for 24, but if Florida does magically figure out its QB position and we get, I'm not even going to say a – you know, a Maxwell candidate, but we just get a, a competent quarterback, a consistently adequate quarterback. The wide receivers are going to be highly problematic for defenses. We knew about Ricky Pearsall. That was the consistent piece there. Aiden Mizell is a big-time problem. Andy Jean is a big-time problem. Those guys can fly. I mean, you talk about the, the broken tackle that Andy Jean had. Um, Aiden Mizell, didn't matter who you put on him. He was just burning guys with straight speed. Um, I mean, there, there was one, I think there was, there was one ball where Jack Miller had him by about, you know, he had about five yards of separation between him and the defender and Jack Miller underthrew him and he had to come back and make the play. And he did meaning, well, if Miller is going to throw the ball, right. Accounting for the speed that Mizell has has he has taken the top off the defense. There's no safety there. And Miller leads him correctly. It's a touchdown. So Florida can get that throw. It's seven points. And even if he doesn't make that throw perfectly, we saw Mizell is more than just a speedy guy. He can come back and with, have the wherewithal to go and make the play. So I'm liking what I saw from him and Gene. I like what I saw from Caleb Douglas. I didn't love that fumble, but I mean, still some nice, some nice wiggle to, to make as much of a play as he did there. We saw him against Texas A&M last year. We saw him make some nice plays sporadically throughout the season, but you know, as guys went down, he stepped up. So good to see that. Uh, I, I think, again, it's just there's so much that falls in the QB position because if Florida's offensive line, for example, does get uh, Michael Mazkua back, and let's say Keontae Goodwin and Roderick Kearney both step in and thrive, and Florida has a, a tremendous offensive line, and Montreal Johnson and Trevor Etienne continue to be the monsters we know they are. And let's say even hell, Cam Cameron or Cam Carroll steps up and becomes a massive playmaker. If Florida can't throw the ball, defenses are gonna just, just gonna stack the box with eight, nine guys, and Florida's gonna lose every game. 
because, or, you know, every game against the respectable opponent, not to Charlotte and McNeese, but you know what I'm saying? Florida's going to lose every game they play against teams with comparable levels of talent because they won't be able to make plays through the air. They won't force the defense to get out of the box and the whole offense shuts down. So I, I hate to keep going back to what you call the low hanging fruit, but there's just so many other things that fail with this single point of failure here at QB that it just has to get better between now and August 31st when the Gators play Utah. Well, and and I brought up Graham Mertz's stat line. It's a respectable, efficient stat line. It just doesn't pop off the paper and wow, it's not one that's going to go out and win games. So I suppose if if he can do that consistently in the SEC, and then we add in a two-horse, you know, or even a three-headed monster of our running back room that we mentioned with, you know, ETN, Carroll, and Johnson, then it's something different, I think, offensively. That is an offense potentially capable of matching the production of last year's team. And as we've talked about in the past, if you can match that and the defense rises up, like what we're going to, I think, talk about here in a second, then that's when you start to see, okay, yes, we can make a jump to eight, nine wins for this coming season. But it really is predicated on the fact that Graham Mertz hits a ceiling of being a game manager. So that's the offense. Let's talk about the defense a little bit. And I think this was probably the star of the night. Uh, maybe Austin Armstrong might have been the star of the night. I don't know. Anybody out there, go watch Go watch uh, some of the gifts out there. It's good stuff. Uh, this guy's animated, to say the least. And I'm really excited to see if, some, what he's like on the sideline. I think I think we got ourselves maybe the cross of if like Coach Boom, Will Muschamp, and Kirby Smart had a defensive coordinator, this would be like their guy. And I, and, and it just so it's obvious kind of in his mannerisms and the way he's on the sideline. But there was a passion by this defense. There was they were flying to the ball. They were playing aggressive. And and also they were playing assignment sound football, which we talked about a lot last year and why we were not very good. And a lot of that is predicated on on their coach. And I think it's starting to show, it's starting to rub off. He's made an impact in this on this unit within one month on the job. Neil, talk about what you saw on the defense and why it's different from last year. Well, the defensive line. Uh, I mean, you talk, you just mentioned Coach Boom. Well, one of his favorite sayings was, "This is a line of scrimmage league." Well, he, he said "lig," like L-I-G, like that's how he pronounced it. It's a line of scrimmage league. But he's right; it is. Games are won and lost in the trenches, and I absolutely love those new additions we got in the trenches. Cameron Jackson. I mean, we had him on the pod a couple months ago, and, and just right away, Chris, I, I think you'd agree with this statement. We, we could just tell there's an energy about him. If you haven't listened to that one yet, go back and listen to it. It's it's a great story. Uh, the, the short version of it is he grew up an LSU fan. He bled purple and gold. He really wanted to play for LSU. Didn't work out. Went to Memphis. Now he gets his second chance to play in the SEC. He has that chip on his shoulder, wants to prove everyone in Baton Rouge, yeah, you know what? I can play at this level. And so far, he's making the most of it. You can, you can just see with his game tape that he's got a little extra motivation. But it's more than just him. Uh, TJ Searcy, true freshman, heard his name called a lot. He was around the ball a lot, uh, made a lot of things happen, made a lot of tackles, just swarming to the ball. Um, it, he, he lined up in a couple of different positions. I uh, saw him line up a couple times at three technique, a couple times at five, seven, even once. And he's just everywhere on that field, makes things happen. Chris McClellan, not really a new face, but a rising sophomore who's going to play a lot more this year than he did last year. Uh, and Caleb Banks from Louisville, another new face, did a lot of great things, heard his name called a lot, was just around the football a lot, made a lot of things happen. So when people who saw the DL dominate the trenches, 
in that spring game asked the obvious question of, well, was this just a terrible offensive line or was this a great defensive line? I think it's fair to say the offensive line is not at full strength. Cam Waits going down, it that sucked, to be very frank. That was just awful. Micah Miskua being up in the air is certainly not helping matters. And also Rod Kearney is not a center. <laughs> he is not a center. That's not his forte. Doesn't have a lot of experience snapping the ball. It's harder for him to pick things up when you have to worry about snapping the ball and then worrying about defensive alignments. But I think overall, this is more due to the DL being that much better. And I think we're going to see that in the fall as they start going up against other non-teammate players of theirs. Um, I hope I'm right, but I think that just just from the energy I saw, just from the passion I saw last year, I mean, there was the clip that went viral of, of Prince Lee and Yellen in the in the Vegas Bowl against Oregon State with his hands on his hips and just like breathing kind of hard, like looked like he wasn't interested in it. We don't see that this year. We don't see that from anyone this year. And that's not a knock on Prince Lee. I think he was gassed, but there also just wasn't really a lot of guys on that DL to help him out. So I think we will see a much improved defensive line this year. And before I just turn it over to Chris, I mean, the DL was kind of my takeaway, but Shamar James, shout out to him too. He was another guy that was everywhere on that field throughout the night. Well, I think what you're saying is the front seven is just better. Uh, last year, yeah. we had some good pieces on the defensive line. Linebacker room outside of Entron Miller, and it's time Shamar James was virtually non-existent not dependable. That's not the case anymore. I think this is a, the, the transfers that they brought in at, at the defensive line and the linebacker positions are going to elevate this defense to a level that we haven't seen in a couple of seasons. And you've got both kind of some veteran presence and you've also got some newer additions who probably are going to need a little bit more time and maturation in the SEC. But nonetheless, they've added a ton of value to the football team. And that's why we saw what we did on on Thursday night and I would agree I think Cameron Jackson in front of the program I mean you just see the energy and I just love the fan engagement he just loves being a Gator and he you know he's shouting the fans out on Twitter and social media and thanking him for coming out also like a guy like Caleb Banks had a really good spring and people were not certain whether or not he was going to be a guy that could be contributing right away because he didn't play a whole lot in his freshman year at Louisville but I don't think that's the case I think he's going to contribute from day one he's got that SEC size already in, in the weight room and he's going to be contributing in that rotation you still got Desmond Watson there in the middle uh, and then in the linebacker room Manny Nunnery was somebody that I, I think people kind of thought was just an add one in that room but I, he made he made plays in this game. He's made plays in the spring. He's going to contribute both, I think, on the defensive side of things and special teams. Uh, it's great to to just see those additions uh, on this team. So I'm I'm excited. And then you know you look at the secondary. They didn't do a whole lot, but I think that's probably because of the fact that the defensive line was just so dominant. I mean, we had double digit quarterback hurries between the first and second team defensive lines and linebackers. Uh, they got uh, a couple of sacks in there. They forced a turnover. I mean, that that this is exactly what we wanted to see, and it took away the pressure of the defensive of the defensive backfield. Whereas last year, we weren't getting pressure on the quarterback, we weren't stopping the run, and then the 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 secondary was just absolutely torched because the teams knew that the defensive line wasn't going to get pressure. They could just sit back there and pick us apart, and that might not be the case this year if we're getting that penetration up front with our front seven like Neil's talking about. So, yeah, I, I'm really excited. I came away from the spring game more, a lot more confident on the defensive side of the ball. I came away at least confident they could go in 
and win us games in the SEC. Like I think that's a defense that's at least capable of going on the road in Lexington and winning a game. It's capable of, of going on the road in Columbia, South Carolina, or Missouri and winning a game. Now, I understand those are the middle-of-road SEC teams, but as we've talked about, we got to start beating those teams consistently again if we're going to take that next step in the SEC. So if we at least got a defense that can go on the road and win those types of games, maybe even feed off the crowd in Ben Hill Griffin Stadium against a team like Tennessee early in September and win a game, that's huge. Now, they may not be a defense that's elite enough to go and beat LSU on the road or beat Georgia in Jacksonville. We don't know yet. We, we just don't know what their ceiling is. But I, from what I've seen thus far, it is at least a, de- a competent defense. And that's what I wrote in the article. It's a competent defense that can probably go out and win us some games and increase our win total and our you know, expected value for what's possible. So, Neil, before we wrap up spring, I do want to ask this question of you and just maybe get some fan opinion. What do you think of – a lot of coaches have talked about this. The spring game is where we get to play each other you know, orange and blue. But what if we, instead of playing against each other, started playing in a, an in-state opponent for spring? Maybe we went down and we scrimmaged UCF or FAU, you know, but it's hat on hat. It's another team. It's a little bit more physical. And we actually are going out there to prove ourselves and win a game. What do you think about that? I know there was some talk in Alabama where, you know, UAB might play University of Alabama, Auburn might play Troy, something kind of like that. What do you think if Florida would do something similar? I'm all for it. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a pretty big Giants fan too, so I I love when the Giants do those joint practices in the off season uh, with you know, an AFC team. So I'm I'm for it. I do think that there is something to be said about getting the guys more familiar with each other, getting them a little bit more competitive with each other. You can, you know, you, you form your friendships with your teammates throughout the the course of the first couple of months you're there. Maybe the spring game is where you can maybe iron sharpens iron, develop. The, the competitive side of your friendships with your fellow teammates who are, by the way, all tremendous athletes. So you get those, those heads kind of clashing with two competitive, talented athletes. Maybe that makes them better. I think there's something to be said about that, but I mean, I, w- I would certainly not be unhappy in the slightest bit if we wound up scheduling, you know, an FAU or, or really an FCS or even a, even a D2 team, you know, get them some money, get them some exposure, put them on national TV for a change. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, Marcus Stokes' new school, the University of West Florida Argonauts. Get, I mean, hey, they could use the exposure. They give them some money. And in return, the Gators get to feel good about themselves by going and presumably beating up on them. So I think that there is something to be said for that, too. I think that there will be some school in the next five, 10 years that that does take that plunge. Or I should say there will be a pair of schools that takes that plunge and does that. And I think once that happens, you'll see a lot more schools do it very, very quickly. So it's a, good, it's a good point. Um, I don't think the sport is quite ready for it yet, but I think within five, 10 years, we will see that. I think you'll see it more prevalent once we get into the tougher schedules of the SEC in the new era that we're entering in college football, where you have more teams in the playoff. Therefore, they're scheduling a little bit more difficult. And then maybe instead of that FCS team or that kind of cupcake team we played before rivalry, once conference plays over, you play them in the spring instead. I can see teams kind of maybe going that route instead of, like you say, you pay that team like we already do pay them to come to the swamp in late November before we play Florida State. And instead of that, we play them in the spring and we actually get that exposure. We get that for that team and we get that experience for our guys against a a real life team. So just thought I'd put that out there. and, And I know that's been a topic of conversation during the spring season here, but Good spring game, good spring game recap. 
Now we move on to some news that happened at halftime of the spring game. And I think a lot of people were sort of expecting this to happen, but it finally did. We had composite four-star. He is a five-star on 247. Safety Xavier Flasami uh, committed. He's out of Texas, committed to the Florida Gators. This is a big one, Neil. We had kind of heard about this coming for some time. Florida continues its hot streak on the recruiting trail. Last cycle, Florida had a, a solid class of 20 guys, quality guys, 18 of which were consensus four-stars. But we are lacking that top end, top 100, even top 50 talent. With this commitment, Billy Napier and the Florida Gators now have four top 60 consensus players in both on three and two, four, seven. And there potentially are more on the way. What does this commitment mean for the Gators and, 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 and Billy Napier? Well, it means that the Gators are going to get a lot faster as a team when he gets there because this guy can fly. Noticing the trend here, you know, Aiden Mizell talked about Eugene Wilson coming uh, in the fall. Andy Jean also on campus. Got a lot of guys who can run, and this is no exception. Th I mean, he's a track guy, and you can see that speed and action on his game tape. He runs the 100-meter dash, not 100 yards, but 100-meter dash in 10.52 seconds. So that's not 100 yards. That's about 109 and a half yards that he can cover in 10.52 seconds, which is ridiculous. He's got a background as a receiver. I think that's going to help him with a little bit with the with the brains part of being a defensive back. Most schools are recruiting him as a safety as he moved over there. Last year was a first team all district pick there in Texas. And as a safety, he's got a nose for the football. I think some of that comes from his experience on the offense. He did play receiver for his freshman and sophomore seasons there. Didn't really play a ton as a freshman, but as a sophomore, got a lot of looks at receiver. I think that's helping him with his football IQ. He loves to get low and make tackles. Or I shouldn't say he loves it, but he does it well. No one loves it. That's that's very physically unpleasant to do, but he he seems to love it. He does it quite a bit on his tape. Um, and, and I love the energy that he just flies around the field with. I still think there is some room for him to fill out his frame a bit, assuming, though, that he does add 10, 15 more pounds or so of muscle mass. This guy is a pretty safe bet to see the field as a freshman in 2024, or I should say as safe of a bet as any true freshman is. The other takeaway with this guy, you knew it was going to happen with someone the moment Billy Napier moved the spring game to Thursday night. Turns out it's him. I didn't love the move at first personally. It cost me an extra night in a hotel. I know many fans didn't like it for similar logistical reasons, but it's not about us. That's the main thing that everyone, I think, uh, maybe who's not still happy with that move should be aware of. It's not about us as fans. I know it, it It sucks. It's kind of weird to say, you know, F the fans because they kind of foot the bill for this program, but with free admission, that didn't really matter anyway. And again, it's about recruiting. It's a recruiting tactic, tactic. It's a marketing move, and it worked. And I'll bet you we're not done seeing the fruits of that labor blossom. I will bet that somewhere down the line, one of the 290 different recruits who were at that spring game will commit to the Florida Gators, at least in part because of his ability to get to Gainesville on that Thursday night, on a night that did not conflict with another spring game on Saturday that he wanted to go to. And if that happens with even one kid, which it already did, but we'll say if it happens with even one more kid, the move paid off. Yeah, I mean, it was a star-studded uh, recruiting effort for on, on Thursday night. And I agree, Neil. I think it's going to pay off in the long run. We're going to see more commitments in the short term and the long term because of it. And and you had commits that are already there. You had a multiple other five stars that were visiting. 
So this was a huge, huge pull for these guys. So we should be thankful that we did make the move. And I don't think fans are going to care about the inconvenience to them if we're bringing in top talent like we are with Xavier Fasami and other guys that might follow. And if you're bringing in the top talent, it's the talent acquisition business, like Billy Napier said in his opening press conference. If we're bringing in those talented players and then we're ultimately winning championships, fans are just simply not going to care anymore, whether or not the game's on Thursday, Saturday, or any other day of the week. If we're if the results show, Florida uh, fans will, will be thankful that we made this move. So, and I, and I think it's just as far as the safety room and the impact, I mean, he's also a pretty good hitter, too. I mean, this is a guy that can come up and lay the wood. I mean, you look at his highlight tape out there. He is putting on some Reggie Nelson-esque hits. He's a headhunter, and, and we've been lacking that since really the days of Kiki Neal and, and Matt Elam. Florida had a guy and forcer back there that made that safety room go. And we just really haven't had that. I would say since Keanu Neal left the program uh, and, and, you know, we had Matt Elam, you know, we had Reggie Nelson. We need a guy like that back there and, and perhaps Xavier could provide that for us in the future. So big commitment. Hopefully the, the, the momentum continues with that commitment. And the updated on three rankings right now, which takes more of the quality of the average recruit into account more so than 247 does. We are the number three recruiting class in the country. Number three behind Georgia and Alabama. That's now where we want it to be. And we are there. That And if we continue to bring in recruits like this, we're going to maintain that average and we're going to stay up there with those schools. That is exactly where we need to be to compete for SEC and national championships. And the 247 composite, we are now, I believe, actually, it's updated. We're ranked around 7th or 8th. But like I said, that is kicking into more account the number of recruits you have. So you have to kind of look at the quality. If you look at the quality on 247, we have the third best recruiting at player average in that as well. So as the numbers continue to pile in, if the trends continue the way they are for the 2024 class, Florida will have potentially a top three recruiting class when it's all said and done. And that is what we need to get those championships going. So with that, we'll finish. We finished up with football recruiting. Now we're going to jump to another sport that's also hot on the recruiting show right now, and that is the basketball team. And we alluded to it last time we talked, but Florida got a major commitment from Walter Clayton from Iona. Uh, this is a guard over who played for Rick Patino. Florida got this recruiting victory over Rick Patino in St. John's as he was looking to go with his head coach there. Also over Kansas. This was a highly sought after recruit and Todd Golding got a win. And we're going to get into this a little bit more in this segment, something I want to touch on. But last year, Todd Golden did not get these recruiting victories in the transfer portal that he needed. And it cost him this season. This year, Neil, he's getting those victories. And Walter Clayton is a big part of that. So what are we getting with Walter Clayton in your estimation uh, now that he's finally committed to the Florida Gators? Well, we're getting a very, very happy poke way on Twitter. For one thing, um, we're getting a very versatile basketball player. We're getting a guy who can do a lot of things. Like you said, we talked about him on our last podcast. We've been hearing good things about the likelihood that he would commit. So we kind of pre-broke him down then. Now it's official. Um, We won't spend too much time on him, at least compared to the football commits, because we did kind of talk about him last time. But just running through the points again real quick, the versatility is something that I don't think Florida's had um, certainly not under, you know, in the first year of Golden's tenure. I don't really think 
really in Mike White's tenure, maybe you can say that that second team of his that went to the Elite Eight, maybe had a couple of guys who could do different things. But for the most part, the Mike White teams and Todd Golden's first team just had guys that could only wear one or two hats, really. No, this guy's not that. It's not that at all. He's a dead-eye shooter, uh, 43.1% from three. He can get to the free throw line. He's a foul magnet, and he can score from there, 95.3 from the line. And he's got a mid-range game. He's got a nice jumper that he can hit from pretty much anywhere on the court. Decent driver. Uh, I don't know that I'd call him great at that, but he's definitely not bad at it. He can score that way. And he's good at defense. He's a very good defender, maybe Maybe say he gets a little bit better with a little bit of, of technical coaching, but I think that he's got the willpower to be very good on defense. He certainly was able to shut down a lot of guys. He went up against at Iona, maybe needing a little bit of tweaking, as I just mentioned, to focus on stopping guys in the SEC. But I think he's got the talent to be able to do that. So love the get. Don't really see a true weakness to his game. Love the addition by Florida. And now, with him and Riley Kugel together in the backcourt, you have to think that Florida's going to get really good guard play because, as we saw with Kugel, he was raw as a true freshman, but he can play the game. And now Florida has him back with Walter Clayton, who's got experience. So now there's experience as opposed to just some talent there, as you know, as you called it, as as I've called it to the Island of Misfit Toys out there. Now Florida's got some some cohesion with some guys who I think really complement each other's skill sets well. So definitely excited to see what Florida looks like in the backcourt next year. Yeah, same here. We need shooters. We haven't had consistent shooters at Florida in so long. That is what made Billy Donovan the team so great back in the day and early in large part at the beginning of Mike White's tenure too when we made that Elite Eight run in 2017. We need to have competent shooters on the floor at all times that can spread the floor, and that's going to really open it up for some of these big men that he started to bring into the program. I think Walter Clayton is somebody that has the ability to do that. Uh, so I'm very excited about the addition. And I just, I, you know, I really love the wins that Todd Golden is starting to getting. He hasn't really shown it in the high school rankings yet. And and I think, you know, we I, I've always, I'm a firm believer that in college football recruiting, you've got to hit high school hard. Transfer portal is just a band-aid and plug and play in certain positions. You can't fill a roster out through the transfer portal in football, right? You can build a program with it at first, like Billy Napier's doing, but it can't be a long-term solution like what Mike Norvell is doing up at Florida State. And I think they're going to see the issues with that eventually. In basketball, you can do that. You can flip a roster in one year. You can go in the transfer portal and find the right guys and put them all together. And 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 they can make the NCAA tournament. Look at what Kansas State did this past year. Look at what Miami did this past year. It is definitely possible to do it. You got to find the right guys that fit your program. And I think Todd Golden's starting to get that. You know, you got Mike Micah Hanglo, Hangloton at center. Uh, now you've got Walter Clayton. You have EJ Jarvis. These are guys that I think fit what he's trying to do offensively. And that leads me to my next commitment that we've got. Um, in Tyrese uh, Samuel, power forward or center out of Seton Hall. This was a recruiting victory over ACC uh, Wake Forest. So another win over a you know a power five program, Neil. Uh, but Tyrese Samuel, kind of a flexible four or five player, played both at Seton Hall. Although from my understanding, he's a lot more comfortable at the four, but he's six foot ten. So now you pair him with Hangloton in the front court. As you talked about, you have Kugel and Clayton in the backcourt. Now you've really got a solid lineup here. And if you go back to some of those teams at, at San Francisco that Todd Golden had, it was predicated on big man play. You needed real tall, big guys 
And that his best team, when he was at San Francisco, that made the NCAA tournament as a 10 seed, had that. And I, I'm starting to start to see the similarities in the way he's hit the transfer portal this cycle. So, you know, what is your impression of the get and Tyree Samuel? And, and kind of overall now, I think we're probably not done quite adding pieces in the transfer portal yet. But Mike, uh, oh, wow, excuse me there. Todd Gold has started to assemble a really good roster. Uh, what do you think of it? Was just the whole total makeup of it? Well, the kid's a very good defender. I saw him a couple times live at Seton Hall last couple of years, and I still lived up in New Jersey. The kid can play defense. Todd Golden's very big on that, and he got himself a guy that can do that. And offensively, he can certainly hold his weight. He can score 11 points a game, 5.9 rebounds a game. He can get you some putbacks, get you some offensive boards there. He can clean up the defensive boards too. He can finish at the rim on offense. And I think now – we have the answer to that talking point we have incessantly hammered away at for the past 12 plus months being Florida's 2022-23 season was shot the minute that Todd Golden lost North Shadow Mirror to Miami and Joe Nye Broom to Auburn. We have said that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again on the pod. And now with Colin Castleton gone, Golden had that much more work to do to get a big team this offseason. Well, EJ Jarvis, Tyree Samuel are your forwards. Micah Hanlogden, who's seven feet tall, is your center. And all of a sudden, look at that. Florida got bigger in the span of, what was it, two and a half weeks since we got EJ Jarvis? I think it was March 31st. It's April 17th now. So in, in less than three weeks, problem solved. Box checked. And, of course, Florida also added backcourt pieces, too, and Walter Clayton and Kep Riley Kugel. So there's probably your starting five if nothing else changes. Um, or at least that's that's definitely three of your starting five, if not four. You've got some big man depth too. I'm adding Alex Condon, the 6'11 big man from Australia. You've got Alex Shimchak from Germany. Got some more height there. And Golden may still not be done. Of course, Alex Fudge, I would say, is is a shocking departure. I don't think it's a particularly debilitating one because he didn't do a ton last year, but it does open up another spot for the Florida Gators to go and add someone else who could potentially be that size depth piece. And you know what? As bad as last year was, and you know, last year was as bad as bad gets at the University of Florida. No defending that. At the end of the day, I I've said before many times, I like Todd Golden. I actually saw him again at the at the Florida Victorious event. Got to talk some ball with him. Got to got to share uh, the bond of being. Of, of being Jewish in the South, which is definitely a, a unique experience. Likeability is not a substitute for wins. He's going to have to win as much as anyone else. But I see the gears turning now. I see the wheels moving in motion. Mike White signed exactly one center in the span of three classes. That, and that was Gorjak Gak. And that had a lot to do with why I turned on him as quickly as I did. Well, that and you know losing to Loyola Chicago and, and Georgia and Vanderbilt at home. But with Golden, I'm more prepared for patience because I see the process that he has in place. I see evidence of what he is trying to do. I can see proof that he has a plan and that he is going about executing it. And I can rest easy as a Gator basketball fan knowing that, you know what, if, if Golden doesn't work out, he doesn't win games. And the day comes that we have to make a change. He will have done everything he could have possibly done. He will have gone down swinging. Didn't feel that with Mike White. So I'm prepared for more patience because of that. 
with Todd Golden. I can see real, real evidence that he's doing what has to be done because what he had in San Francisco when he won, his his good teams looked a lot like this Florida team he's assembling now is shaping up to look like. He's got some some flashy backcourt guys. He, he had some versatility in that backcourt there. Um, and which you know he has now with with Riley Kugel and Walter Clayton, and he's got and he had at th- that team in San Francisco, he had big man depth. Well, he's built that here too, and you know for the most part, Central Florida aside, he's beating the teams he's supposed to beat. So I like where things are headed. I'm prepared for patience, as you know, as much as I said about Mike White, I am you know that's not generally who I am. I like to be. I like to have some patience with a guy and I have a lot more of it when I can see real proof in the pudding for what they're building. And I think kind of the point you're getting to, and I think of this as football as well is football and basketball programs over the last year, even more so two years have been much maligned because of just ineptitude at times. And I think it's turned fans off. That's when an apathy has started to set into the program and both programs, people tune out and then they get, you know, they just don't think anything is going to go right. I think we're starting to see evidence in both football and basketball that we're turning a corner. And it's amazing what recruiting wins can do for programs, even before the results come. And, I, and basketball and football over the last month, two months, we're really starting to see that with both of these young coaches who are trying to make a name for themselves, trying to build a program at the University of Florida. They're showing now the ability that they can do it by making the right moves. Things are starting to align. The recruiting wins are coming. The organization is starting to happen, especially with things like the NIL and Florida Victorious. The stars are starting to align. Fans, I believe, just have to be maybe a little bit more patient, take a few more lumps in the road, but we're going to get there. We're going to get there because the coaches are doing the right things now. Todd Golden is starting to do the right things in the basketball program, much like what Billy Napier is doing with the football program. So with that, we're going to go ahead and put a bow on our Florida, our Florida football and basketball program. And we're going to turn to what is probably the top sport right now at the university of Florida. It was an action packed week. Neil, you were able to make it out to both stickball series. It's let me just start off by saying it is great to beat the Georgia Bulldogs to hell with Georgia. It doesn't matter what sport it is. It is so Nice to get those victories when we get them over the dogs. Uh, softball, I think, was we'll get into that in a little bit here, was a big win in the sense that it was over a top 10 team. But baseball it is just another point that we've won another weekend series. We are undefeated in weekend series this year in baseball. So, Neil, what is your take on the baseball team after their big series win over the Georgia Bulldogs? I mean, it, it, to me, it's it's just crazy how long ago that FSU win feels like now. It feels like it was six years ago, but actually from the day we're recording, it was just six days ago that Tybo hit that game-winning homer to beat FSU in Gainesville. Uh, fun fact on that, by the way, the third straight year that Florida has used an eighth inning or later home run to beat the Knolls in Gainesville. So that's that's that. Got to touch on that. Georgia. Uh, first things first, I have to say that Georgia fans were, for the most part, very, very cordial and pleasant. You no, know, nothing like the horror stories I've heard about them at, in Jacksonville before. Uh, they rooted for their team. The barking is annoying. They do that a little bit. A couple of them got on my nerves a bit towards the later innings. But all in all, it was, it was just a lot of fun watching a game in the same park at them. 
at the same park as them because um, they were very into the game. They cared about their team. You could tell that that some of the people there were family of the players, but some of them were just Georgia fo- Georgia football fans who wanted to see a baseball game. Um, I'm sure there are morons in that fan base because every fan base has them. But just from what I personally experienced at two cocktail parties in Jacksonville and now three baseball games and two softball games, Georgia fans have, for the most part, been very, very pleasant. So cap tip to them for that. Cannot say that about every Cannot say that about every fan base in the SEC. As for the series itself, overall, very good series win. Got to start with what happened on Friday night. When you have a six-run lead in the eighth inning, you got to win the game. A hundred times out of a hundred. Not 98, not 99. No, a hundred times out of a hundred. When you have a six-run lead in the eighth inning, you've got to win the game. I understand that big innings do happen. Things can sort of come off the rails in an inning. That's part of baseball. And I also understand that Florida's relievers – in the ninth, made I mean they, they made the pitches to get out of the to get out of the game. They got a swinging bunt for a perfectly placed infield hit. That's you know the pitcher makes the pitch. The guy can only barely touch it with the the top of his bat, and it's just a perfect bunt basically. And they made the pitch to get a double play ball. And the next thing you know, the ball is in left field because of an error. And now Florida has, instead of getting out of the inning, they've got a problem on their hands. And before you know it, Georgia has scored nine runs in a row. If you're going to be a team that really has serious aspirations of competing for a national title, you you can't have it. You just can't have that. Simple as simple gets. You can't do that. Uh, Because Florida got the better of the play in that game. They had good at-bats. They worked pitch counts. They didn't swing for the fences. Every single at-bat, they got base runners. In fact, they had two grand slams. They did leave a lot of guys on base. But when you score 11 runs, that has to be a win, and it wasn't. And it was the good part of Florida's bullpen that blew that game. That was the part that really stuck out to me. Those were the more reliable relievers that Florida had in the game in the eighth and ninth innings and didn't happen. So – that was Friday. Uh, the weird thing was that, you know, even even as Florida had blown the lead in on Friday night, they loaded the bases again in the ninth inning. Even down three, it just it felt like they were going to win. Like from start to finish on Friday, it felt like the Gators were going to win the game. Saturday was the exact reverse. The Dogs threw out a guy named Charlie Goldstein who came into the game with a six point eight ERA, which is if you're not very familiar with baseball, but trying to get more familiar with it because the Gators are good at it. A really, really bad ERA, like four and a half is considered bad. And this, well, maybe not in college. For college, probably like five to 5.3 or so is considered bad. This guy had a 6.8 ERA and he completely shut the Gators down. He had this nasty wipeout slider that we just couldn't touch. We couldn't buy a hit. And it just felt like Georgia was going to win the game. But thankfully, Hurston Waldrop for Florida threw an absolute gem SEC pitcher of the week. Honors came as a result of that. And Florida just made one more clutch hit than Georgia. Uh, won it in the ninth inning on Michael Robertson's walk-off in the bottom of the ninth. So Georgia won the game that Florida should have won. And Florida won the game that Georgia should have won, evening that series up one game apiece. Sunday, Gators wasted no time. And that this is the weirdness of baseball that I talk about all the time on Twitter. Georgia starter on Sunday, Liam Sullivan, had an ERA of 3.08. Of course, because baseball is weird, Florida just butchered him from the start, and it was the guy with the 6.80 area that they couldn't touch. Josh Rivera, two-run homer. Jack Caglione, the three-run homer. Another run sandwiched in there between the two bombs. Georgia does come back from 6-0 down. They chip away. 
with uh, a few one-run innings. And before you know it, a 6-0 lead after two innings becomes 6-4 in the eighth. And that is where an umpire named Brian DeBrower started taking over the game. Chris, uh, I think this is a stopping point for you. I've been, I mean, I had a four and a half hour car ride from Gainesville back to Charleston to sort of collect my thoughts here. So while I collect them uh, for one final moment, time for your takeaways. what do you think? Well, I, I think the series, it, it, it's a, it was a roller coaster, right? Friday night, you think you have the game won. Anytime you hit two grand slams, Nine times out of ten, you probably won that game. So it was very disappointing to see where we thought the bullpen had turned a corner. Evidently not. There's still some inconsistencies. There's still some things to work out there. So that was disappointing. There is no excuse for losing a six-run lead ever, ever, especially in the ninth inning, especially against a team that is not ranked, is not going to have NCAA tournament aspirations. Now, you turn to Saturday, and it ends up becoming a pitching duel. Didn't plan on it, like you mentioned. Goldstein didn't have a very impressive ERA coming in, and the bullpen actually delivered. Now, of course, Christian Waldrop had a great game, but the bullpen had to keep that thing, had to keep the Gators in it to set up what ultimately was the walk-off win in the ninth inning uh, Saturday night. So it's good to see that the team was able to rebound from that effort on Friday, and the bullpen actually, in a large part, helped them win the game. So that was good to see. And then Sunday... I think it was a classic game. If that To me, that's a classic game that Florida has won pretty much all this year. They do give up some runs, but it doesn't matter because the bats just come alive. And once again, Jack Caglione, uh, who I think had a fantastic celebration in response to what you're about to talk about, you know, it, it, it was it was good. It was great to see the team really respond uh, from Saturday. It didn't rattle them. And I think if, if, if they had lost this series, that would have been a red flag. Because the, the the response from Friday was great, and if you lose a series at home to a team that's not going to go far in the NCAA tournament, if even make it at all, that's an incredible disappointment. Especially going in to May, where we have some pretty big series coming up against South Carolina and Vanderbilt, and we need to show something before we get into the thick of it uh, in SEC play in the SEC tournament. So good to see them respond. As far really quick on what I say, I think these uh, the umpire and the throwing out it made no sense watching from it on TV. It was very confusing what happened. I'm sure you're going to give your take of what happened in person here, uh, and then juxtapose that with what we saw later on Twitter with the expletives that the LSU batter threw at the Kentucky pitcher. There's just no consistency anymore in in college baseball umpiring, and we need to see that because if I get it, you know, you need we need to have sportsmanship. Guys are going to talk trash. Sometimes they talk trash as they're rounding the base from third and heading home after a big home run, and they're just pumped up. It's an emotional game. Sports is an emotional thing. But, you know, let's have some consistency here if we're going to start throwing guys out for unsportsmanlike things. And, you know, I think the league needs to take a serious and hard look at what constitutes an ejection at a certain point in the game. So, Neil, uh, what are your thoughts on that? You're smirking like you know exactly what's coming, and you're right because it is coming. Um, first thing I'll say is it was not just what I'm about to talk about that had Gator fans rightfully pissed at Brian DeBrower. There were a couple of questionable calls here and there throughout the game, but in the eighth inning, he starts really compressing the zone. So a lot of pitches that were being called strikes in the first seven innings of the game were now suddenly called balls. And I, I talked to multiple players after the game and they said the exact same thing. Cause I didn't have the best vantage point on, you know, balls and strikes sitting 
pretty good seats, but I mean, I'm not at the plate and multiple Florida players told me, yeah, you know, those pitches were called strikes earlier in the game, just from our vantage point in the field watching. And they were in the exact same spots in the eighth inning and they were suddenly called balls and Georgia loaded the bases on one hit and two walks and a third walk brings in a run that makes it six, four Ryan Slater is pulled for Brandon Neely. Neely gets a strikeout to get out of the inning and he pumps his fist and he yells, come on, let's go. And because Brian DeBrower had warned both sides early in the game about the trash talking, he is ejected. So here we go. I, I played baseball and tennis. So I, I naturally just detest umpires and pretty much all officials with a special type of poison. It's something I've never really let go of from my own playing days as a, as a kid and a teen and even through college. But although I have opinions and I make no bones about them, the motto of the show is keep it respectful, but keep it real. And part of that means despite my own inherent biases, I will acknowledge that umpires have a very tough job. If something even borderline happens, you have to make a split second decision and then stand behind it as one of the two teams is inevitably going to lose their minds over it. It's not fun to do. It's not easy to do. And if you truly think that you saw what you saw and what you saw was not good for the home team, you're going to get booed. You're going to get heckled. You're going to have your personal life questioned. It is, it's just what's going to happen. I mean, and look, I'm good at digital marketing and writing and helping websites rank high on Google with SEO. That's what I do for my job. And that's why I do that. I'm not good. I could not be good at the job of umpiring or refereeing. I admit it. I'd get in all kinds of fights with parents and fans, say stuff I shouldn't say. And I, I just wouldn't be cut out for it. I could not do this job. And I can admit that this is an objectively very difficult job to do. So while I do have a hatred for officials stemming from my own childhood and teen years, I respect those who do the job. But if you're going to do the job, you have to follow the job description and do what the job tells you to do. And the job of being an official is to officiate the game. It is not to decide the game. And if you happen to be a power-hungry individual with feelings made out of styrofoam and you have a natural hatred of college kids enjoying the best years of their lives, you are not qualified to do that job. You don't belong there. College athletes are only in college for three or four years. And I guess with COVID, some of them five, but not any longer than that. They'll never get those years back. You don't eject a college athlete and take away from their careers, which by the way, ejecting them comes with a four game suspension. So you don't eject an athlete for simply showing emotion for him or herself, not at the umpires, not at the other team, but just himself or his teammates. And look, there is a point at which the umpires do need to step in and take control. Yes. Are there things that a college athlete could do that merited ejection? Yes. If a pitcher tries to blatantly hit a batter in the head and it's obvious it's not a mistake, yes. Or if he hits three batters in a row, sure, run him. If a player uses a racial or homophobic slur, yes, eject him. That's not acceptable in any civilized society, and that is worth an ejection. And even just two dugouts yelling back and forth at each other. I mean, it happens in every single game. It happens it happened in all three games of Florida-Miami I was at, and it happened all three Georgia games I was at this weekend. But if it gets to the point where F you or 
you're a bitch or go F yourself or all that starts flying back and forth. Go ahead, warn them. And if they keep doing it, fine, eject them. But I don't care what warning you may have given beforehand. There is zero objective reason to look at what Brandon Neely did and decide it is worth an ejection. There is no rational human being with the slightest semblance of social skills, no personal insecurities that give him motivation to make himself look like a big man in front of thousands of people and no vendetta against Brandon Neely or the Florida Gators that watches Brandon Neely pump his fist and yell, let's go and come on and think that he is demonstrating the type of bad sportsmanship that warrants him getting run. And as you mentioned, Chris, this is all made all the more frustrating by the fact that LSU's Jared Jones was caught on camera yelling F you. And then a certain very unflattering term for a certain female organ that starts with a P at the Kentucky pitcher radio silence from the sec office on that. It is late on Monday night. As we are recording this, it has been a full 48 hours since that happened. No one in those Birmingham offices has done a thing, not suspended him, not publicly reprimanded him, not announced an investigation into the incident. Like, hey, aren't you a little curious as to how that word comes out? You don't think maybe there's some sort of natural escalation that leads to that? Typically, people don't just don't just call each other the P word for no reason. You don't just go up to someone on the street and start throwing that word out there. It, does, it doesn't work like that. There has to be some sort of buildup that gets you there. Aren't you a little curious as to how that transpired? Nothing. And yes, I realize that two different crews were officiating those games. But the lack of consistency that you talked about, Chris, between the crews is infuriating. And it does nothing to prove to me that the conference has any interest in its own motto giving the players the best experience, or it just means more of being in the SEC. So look, I don't know what happens to Brian DeBrower from here, but according to his LinkedIn page, he is the director of training for the United Travel Umpires and is an umpire in multiple NCAA conferences, which is objectively horrifying to think that he is teaching and influencing other young umpires in training. Hopefully someone can... I don't know, give him a magic eight ball to help him improve his performance as an umpire. And hopefully the four game suspension that came to Neely as a result of the ejection is overturned. And we don't have to go the entire South Carolina series without our most consistent reliever. And before we get off this topic, shout out to Jack Haglion, who hit the grand slam to put the game away and then walked like a robot back to the dugout to troll the umpire. Like, all right, we can't show emotions. Cool. You got it, buddy. And thanks to that Grand Slam, Florida won the game and the series. And that should be the focus because sports are about the people who play them. But unfortunately, because we have a little man who chose to use his baseball game as his outlet to compensate for his shortcomings and make himself feel like he's worth something, we have to talk about this, which is an absolute shame. <sighs> Had to get that off my chest, Chris. And if you notice, one more really quick point. I'm not mad about the result of a game. I mean, as you can see, I'm not mad about loss on Friday. I'm mad because this bozo is taking away opportunities from a kid's college career. I don't get mad about wins and losses. Disappointed? Frustrated? Yeah, sure. Not mad. Part of growing up means realizing sports aren't about you. They're about the people who play them. But I have a moral compass, and I know right from wrong, and people who fall on the wrong side is what gets me furious. All right, I'm done. Well, 
I'm glad we could provide uh, this therapy session uh, for Neil and uh, other Gator baseball fans out there who were rightfully frustrated by what happened and the ejection. But you know what? It's good to see that the team responded in kind. And hopefully this is just more fuel for them to move forward in the series to come. So I, I really hope that there's some response from the league office, like you mentioned, but thus far, nothing. So we will wait and see what they do. Your move, Birmingham. On to the next diamond sport. We have softball. And we, as we mentioned, they took two out of three as well over the Georgia Bulldogs. This over a top 10 Georgia Bulldogs team. They had a pretty impressive series, at least first two games of the series where, Neil, they were able to run rule them in the first game and then a come-from-behind victory in the second game to be able to take the series. They unfortunately fell in pretty big fashion uh, in the third game, but nonetheless, a great, great win for the team and something that we, you know, now consistently they're starting to show that they're able to piece together and win some of these weekend series where they were struggling a little bit in SEC play. So, Neil, what do you think this means for the team going forward? Well, it means that they're back in the in the hosting conversation for sure with regionals. I mean, they were in the top 16 before this weekend. Winning that series only helped put them up further. I think now because they play in the ultra-tough SEC, they have an they have a chance. It's an outside chance, but they have a chance to maybe slip into that top eight and get themselves a, a super regional hosting opportunity if they were to win their regional. Um, I mean, I, I just liked what I saw from the Gators. I mean, the, the eye test was was something that I actually had never seen in person before. So first ever Gator softball game in person. That was great. Um, but I mean, they, they passed the eye test. It wasn't just looking at the score going, oh, we killed them. Oh, cool. We won by one run. Oh, nice. We must have wanted, gutted out a tough game there. Just watching the games and watching how they sort of flowed was very impressive. Um, didn't watch a ton of Friday's game. I started at tennis. Uh, watched from behind the street uh, in, in right field for a couple innings on my way to baseball. I saw one of Skylar Wallace's three bombs. Beautiful swing, just absolutely barreling up a pitch and knocking it out. Uh, I saw Avery Gells come through with a single up the middle. And when I left for the baseball game, Florida was already way up in front. I saw the highlights after, like what I saw, good at-bats, a lot of barrels on on softballs. Um, For the most part, very clean and impressive fielding. Elizabeth Hightower did her job in the circle. Florida wins on a mercy rule with Wallace's third bomb in the game. Saturday was the game I was at. Sunflower Saturday. A beautiful thing, really, keeping Heather Braswell's memory alive and well. And it was quite a game. Lexi Delbray had some struggles. In her defense, this was a really good Georgia offense that can mash. But she got Florida through four innings. Riley Trilicek on her senior day took it the rest of the way. On offense, meanwhile, Skylar Wallace hits another bomb. Hero of the game, Avery Gels. I, I really liked what I saw from her towards the end of last year, especially in the Super Regional against VT and then again in Oklahoma City against Oregon State. She's kept swinging the strong bat this year, made a lot of solid contact, a lot of barrels on pitches, hadn't hit one out of the park all year long until Saturday. Florida's down 7-6. Avery got a pitch she could hit and just crushed it. First homer of the year. She's hyped, running around the bases or sprinting, really, basically doing exactly what Brandon Neely did to get himself ejected as she ran around the bases, not taunting. She's not mocking anyone. She's just celebrating, bumping her fist. Luckily, she didn't get ejected too. And Trilicek from there took it the rest of the way and Florida won the series. 
I really just got to give a shout out to to Avery Gels as as the person off the field that I saw. She and her teammates must have spent an hour after the game signing autographs for probably hundreds of little girls who all gotten in the autograph line. And she was smiling. She was laughing with every one of them, kind of making them feel like they were the ones doing her the favor. Like Avery was the one benefiting from the kids doing her the favor of signing autographs along with her sister, Kinsey Gels, uh, Charlotte Eccles, a couple of other players. I can't recall offhand, but uh, there's a picture on Twitter where I tagged them also. Go look at that. Anyway, I mean, just just so genuinely nice and kind and sweet to all these kids. And that's just awesome to see. Uh, you know, like I just said, the reason I'm so I'm so in love with college sports is because I just love seeing good people be successful at what they love. Uh, another example of which was Ricky Pearsall. Shout out to him for just hanging around the swamp for an hour after the spring game, signing autographs, laughing uh, along with the fans, just making them feel making them feel good about themselves. Um, yeah, he's objectively a very good SEC wide receiver, but that's not why he's one of my favorite players. And the same thing with Avery Gels. You know, yeah, she has a really nice swing, puts a lot of barrels and a lot of pitches. I like her hustle. I, I like her her fielding mechanics. She's a very good player. It's not why I'm a huge fan of hers because you know there, there were so many little kids who wanted her autographs. Avery can't possibly remember them all, but each and every one of them is going to remember those few seconds they spent hanging around her for the rest of their lives. And that's what college sports is all about. Yeah, no, definitely. No, it's good to see the team have a big response and always good to see kind of our athletes to pay it forward to the fans who who give a lot. You know, you came down from South Carolina. We got fans that travel from all over the state and the country to come see our players. And it is always good to see these athletes uh, come back, come around, stay, stick around after games and give back to the community in so many ways. And also through vessels like Florida Victorious. So and with that, Neil, we want to thank all of our fans again for tuning in to the In All Kinds Weather Forecast. Uh, we'll have a special guest later this week with Florida Victorious, one of the founders. So we'll have a great we have a great podcast for you here to listen to today, hopefully with tons of content. And we'll finish the week off strong with that interview. Uh, and I also want to give a shout out to Alma Mater once again, one of our new partners that we're working with. So please uh, support them. As, as if you're supporting Alma Mater, you're also supporting our athletes. So please go to our social media at, in all kinds of weather and all of our other Instagram, Twitter accounts have that link up there. So click that link, buy some in all kinds of weather or some Alma Mater merch and support our athletes through the NIL. So thank you again for tuning in and please make sure to leave us a five-star review, share our podcasts on all of our platforms, wherever you listen to them. It's great to be a Florida Gator, Neil. Lots of good news in Gator Nation. And uh, we look forward to our next episode.